Daryl Hardage from Seguity. Um, great to have you here today. Great to be here, mate. I um, I was so blown away by a recent presentation that you guys did for us at a uh, at a director's summit that I thought it was crazy to not get you on and and talk. Um, the folks at home probably don't know exactly what Daryl's all about or Seguity for that matter. Can you give us the elevator pitch on you and, and what it's all about? Yeah, sure. Look, the, the company Seguity, uh, it's a mashup of two words, sage and acuity, which means wise insight. Try to get a .com with one word's pretty hard, so we had to create a word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've been running this, we're coming into our 14th year. And our specialty is measuring client experience or customer experience, however people refer to them, but mostly about what defines excellence. Mm-hmm. Most people are measuring satisfaction and they have the best intentions to get feedback, but they the, haven't got the best methodology to do it. So we measure client experience. We only do it by the phone. So we don't do emails and text messages. We want to have a real-time conversation and be able to probe and really dig into what's behind a, you know, a person's experience. And most importantly, when you get a score of 10 out of 10 or a 9 out of 10, you've got someone in that moment who really, really loves doing business with you. Mm. You've got to be able to get to the core of why they feel so strongly about that business. And most of the time we're, we're talking about heart drivers because it's the emotion that builds loyalty and and, um, and confidence in a business. So we uh, we do only do phone calls and we uh, probe it that way and we get high quality feedback and then we analyze that and you know we run a whole lot of analytics on client experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we've been running that for 14 years. We're up around 600,000 phone calls in our journey. So we've got enormous amount of data on what sits behind and, and we're probably 95% of everything we do is business to business. So mm. we, we don't do pizza shops. Um, mostly high value clients, long-term relationships. A lot of our clients have a large lag time in their sale process. So it's all the things that are critical to know what you have to do to keep your clients because they're very, very hard to replace mm. or you don't want to have to replace them. So that's our main gig. And over that journey, we have, you know, we've measured some extraordinary, we've done billion dollar plus businesses all the way down to veterinarian service. Mm. Um, and there's a common thread that exists right through business. When you see extraordinary results where people are scoring that 10 out of 10 on their experience, there's a pattern that exists always in why they score so highly. And it doesn't actually matter what it is that you do. It's it's how you go about supporting them and serving them in, in your market that has this very um, consistent and common thread that sits in excellence. And this is one of the things that I don't believe many uh, business leaders and managers actually understand. Yeah, and that's an interesting point in, in you have a very firm philosophy around what it means to meet or exceed a client's expectations. And and what resonated with me in our recent session, my first part-time job ever was at Bunnings. Right. Um, and, and I reckon it was the best first part-time job that a kid of my level of discipline, if you'd like to say, could probably have because it was really about um, their philosophy was you have to exceed every client's expectations. It was yeah. never good enough to meet a client's expectations. And this was like in the late 90s, right, where retail sort of had an expectation. We hadn't really been hit with online. Um, but it, it taught me the importance of making sure that every customer is is being met with an exceeding level of customer service. Yeah. Um, where do you see the importance in that? Oh, look, um, 
it comes down, the key that I look at it is whenever I do a keynote or a talk, I always say, you know, has anybody here ever seen a, a billboard or a sign that says a 100% satisfaction guarantee? Or you'll be completely satisfied, or we have the highest satisfaction ratings. Um, and my question to that is, is well, as opposed to what? Mm. Like, you know, we're going through a renovation at home and I'm in the kitchen phase. Yeah, great. Oh, <laughs> the cheap phase. Just, just, <laughs> it's just joy. Not. Yeah, yeah. And, and if somebody says to Sue, um, you're going to be 90% satisfied with this kitchen, there's no way. <laughs> it's not happening, it's is happening, it? No. You know? there's, see, the thing at its core with all this stuff is, Mike, is that satisfaction, unfortunately, for so many companies, and, it, and this is just how they're being trained, I guess, that's what they see as their objective. Really high customer satisfaction ratings as our objective, but satisfaction at its core is is the average of averages. It's measuring just what expected, as you said. It's not necessarily measuring going beyond expectation. It's meeting expectation. Yeah. So when you think about being satisfied with things, it's mean it's fine. It's okay. But there's no wow and there's no magic in satisfaction. So, so our whole philosophy with this is, and with every one of our clients, we're like. We don't use this word in the business ever again as a good thing. Satisfaction is like, whoops, mm. what did we do wrong? Yeah. Because rather than it being the destination, which a lot of companies have it as, we say it's the starting line. Yeah. Because if you start any lower than satisfaction, you've failed. Yeah, correct. You haven't even met expectations, right? Mm. So satisfaction and high levels of satisfaction have got to be the minimum starting point of any engagement and the minimum standard that you can accept for a moment without making that a standard. Mm. Uh, and so our whole philosophy around this in, in this, the, the system we've created is called client appreciation because when you measure client appreciation, you're now measuring a completely different type of experience. When you measure satisfaction, you're measuring what people expected and it all went fine, there was no drama, you know, um, no disappointments, that kind of thing. But once you start to understand the difference between the, um, the, the future behaviour of clients that have received a satisfactory experience as opposed to the future behaviours of clients that have achieved client appreciation and an appreciative experience, it is just two worlds apart. There's yeah. no comparison. So appreciation um, is like, like I always always say when I, when I do gigs is, you know, think of the people in your life, right, that are really important to you, the significant people, the people you care about, the people you love, the people you appreciate. What words describe how you feel about these people? Mm. And they're always hard words. Yeah. It's trust, it's it's care, it's, you know, these are the people you, you have home for dinner, that kind of stuff, you know. They're an important, critical part of our life. And then I ask, think in the same group of people, they've done nothing wrong at all, but you're satisfied with them. What words describe how you feel about the people you're satisfied with? Mm. And it's hard to come up with words. And the usual words are fine, okay, no, no big deal. Yep. And it, it's it's a head connection. So in part of your um, conversations with clients, are they the are they the words you're looking for when you because because you clearly define a difference between a head driver and a heart driver. I, I would assume head driver is common sense stuff. Um, well, head that... drivers are, are, are things that are process driven. Right. So it's efficiency. It's it's st having stock on the shelf. It's easy to do business with. 
It might be your ordering processes. It's it's sort of the hard stuff, yep. if you think of it that way. Yep. And the heart drivers are the human engagement. Yep. So that's the friendly, the helpful, the trust, the understanding, and most importantly, the communication. Do you consider that to be the most important? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. The top two drivers, and it's slight change over the last few years, and we'll, and we'll get to this, is how it's changed so much. But when you look at data and we have you know tens of thousands of people that have scored nine and ten out of ten and when you look at the reasons why the most common one at the moment it's changed a little bit it used to be communication was the top one so if you have mastery in communication Mm. where you do it better than anyone else it will stand out beyond everything else Mm. people will say oh communication and then you say, well, what is it about the communication? It's it's effectively the efficiency and the clarity of the communication. So when companies get their communication really high and they, they make it human as well. So you've got to have your emails and text messages and your digital part because that's critical for speed and that sort of thing, you know, your orders just being placed and what have you. But where it really determines greatness for companies and great client experience is when they pick up the phone. Like it's unbelievable how many companies avoid talking to their clients on the phone. Mm. They think it's inefficient. Yeah. And a lot of the bean counters think it's expensive. But um, when when COVID first kicked in, I, I called all of our clients and I said, whatever you do, especially the ones with account managers, do not get rid of your account managers. Mm. Whatever you do, they are the custodians of the relationship that's going to now be remote yep. and make sure they make phone calls. And so... Where some companies dropped those staff because they couldn't be out in the road, the ones that kept them and kept the relationship strong, they had a point of difference when things picked up again because mm. you cared about me. You checked in, you followed up, and you made the phone calls. So the communication is the, is the number one uh, traditionally. But efficiency has kicked in uh, over the last sort of year or so. Efficiency uh, is probably – just ahead of communication is the number one reason why companies get very, very high scores. Mm. And a lot of that makes sense when you think about the drama we've been through with COVID, where you've had supply issues, logistics issues, um, communication issues around that. You know, People can't even tell you when something's going to turn up. So when companies have got on top of this and really making it a focus and they are super efficient and part of efficiency is communication because you have to communicate for people to say you're efficient. Yeah. So when you bring the two together, they are the, the two dominant drivers of client appreciation in the market at the moment. And the interesting thing with it is that when you get that right, and, it, and they're a combination of process and people, but when you can blend the two together and really keep that relationship there, it sets um, companies apart. Mm. And the other flip side of that is too, um, for anyone that scores eight to zero, we ask, well, what's the most important improvement they could make so you would score closer to ten? Because we want to find, we want to define what excellence is, and also define what's holding it back. Yeah. And we're looking for primarily two key reasons. Sometimes there's a third, but you you don't want ten things to fix. You want one or two things to fix. Mm. And the interesting thing is uh, that's changed a little bit in the last eighteen months or so as well. Is if, uh, communication is the number one improvement people want to see. So they want more improve, like more yeah. communication. Yeah. So yeah. when you get it right, mm-hmm. you nail it, 
And the minute you don't, it's the biggest frustration. Yep. And then the second one is efficiency. So they switch. Yep. So we're, so they so the great thing about this is, is as well I say to people is there are a lot of businesses out there where they've had challenges that are just completely out of their control. Like you can't do anything about the prices of, of manufacturing in Germany. We've got, mm. we've got clients that make stuff in Germany and they're getting smashed on price because the energy crisis. Yep. So their power's incredibly. So all their prices have gone up. They can't do anything about that. They also can't do anything about logistics as well out of, out of Europe. Mm. So they're things they can't control. But when you have feedback and the, and the two most dominant ones are communication and efficiency, all of those answers sit within the business. Mm. There's stuff that you can control. And even if you, you have some issues with efficiency where you can't get hold of things because of other suppliers, as long as you educate and communicate that clearly enough, people will understand. Yeah. And it's, it's just this – and the biggest thing that, that's, that's been the, the – I guess the um, – the canyon in the middle, what causes this? Because you've got greatness being communication efficiency and frustration being communication efficiency. And what the common thread in the middle is? Assumption. Mm. There's this massive assumption that our market understands and they, they know that we've got delays and and it's just this huge assumption that clients actually understand and they don't. And is that from complacency because we're saturated in knowing this information on the Part daily? Yeah. And also it's the COVID hangover yep. because it was a relevant thing that you just couldn't get stuff, but it's changing now. It's definitely changing now. Yep. And so now there's the the challenge is that, the, and that's why the complaint of communication so high is because it hasn't got back to what it was pre-20. Mm. If you just think about you know, your own consumer experiences. And I always ask these questions, you know, who who here in a, in a room or a conference, you know, feels that um, service standards are higher today than they were pre-COVID and you, you will get maybe 5% of people's hands go up. Yeah. Most people go, it's nowhere near as good as it used to be. Mm. And, and that's because of massive team turnover. You know, we had the great resignation yep. in, in 21, 22, um, and so a lot of the really strong long-term relationships that were there with account managers and salespeople and key people in the companies, because they've moved so much, those relationships have gone. Mm. So either someone in your company's left and the relationship's not there or your actual client, they've had a change of, a, of staff as well. And so you're not dealing with the same person either. So when you mix the two together, you've got all these new people dealing with each other around the same product and service that don't have any history. Mm. And so... The key part of this as well is, and this is where it's a massive missing, very few companies, and I ask this question, what do you do in onboarding? When you onboard a new team member, what specifically do you do to articulate what excellence is in this company with client experience? And really, is it even it's on the It's really even done. <clears throat> More to the point, like everyone's really excited about the head drivers that they've got for onboarding because the documents are great and the process is all sweet. But yeah, how do we convey the workplace culture totally. and what it is that we're here to do? Totally. And and the thing is with that is that often it's it's um, quite insular. So when they're talking about workplace culture and things, they're just talking about inside the business. Mm -hmm. But the critical part where that's measured is outside the business with the clients because the workplace culture... When, when you look at number one companies, and number one could be country, state, 
city, region, whatever number one is for you. But when you look at number one companies in every product and service, they're never the cheapest, mm. but they're always regarded as the best, not so much for product, for their service. Yeah. And and that comes from um, obviously the internal culture of the business. But if it, if it isn't um, measured from an independent market perspective where the market's giving you feedback on how well you, you perform, and that's what the heart drivers are because yep. the heart drivers measure culture. Head drivers measure process, mm. but heart drivers measure culture. So when your clients give you really high scores on understanding, trust, communication, helpful, um, they're talking about the people there and therefore that's a reflection of leadership and culture. Yeah. Always. You made a really interesting point before and, and there's there's two parts of this part of the conversation. One is the pre- and post-COVID world, which I'd like to get to in a second. Um, but when you talk about communication and people's ability to recognise the importance of communication, that seems to be something that I have witnessed change dramatically over the last couple of generations and, and more so because younger folk, and particularly if you get like a young business development manager in a business or something, they're not comfortable picking up the phone. They're not comfortable having the face-to-face type conversations that people used to have. For them, it's all, I'm just going to send an email and then I'll assume that like because I didn't get a reply that that email has been dealt with mm. and so on and so on. Um, are there things we need to be aware of in business in in bringing new staff in, in understanding that the world that they're communicating in is actually a little bit different? Um, how we how should we manage something like that? Look, great point. Um Tell me when email's effective communication. Mm. Never. Never. And who would like more? Mm. <laughs> no one. Yeah. Um, and, and this is the big assumption because that is kind of the way that, you know, I've been around a few decades, so we call the younger generation. Mm. Um, they like to communicate that way with each other. Fine. But your mates aren't buying off your boss. Yeah. They're not buying from the company you work for. Mm. Maybe they are. But in general, that's not effective communication because if you think about the amount of times you've got to go back and forth on an email trail mm. and it can go over a week. Copying someone else in. Or if you, you just pick up the yeah. phone, you'd nail it in probably five to ten minutes and it's sorted mm. and there's clarity of understanding. Because it's proper authentic two-way communication, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and it's yeah. and it's in the moment. It's like, so, you know, when can I expect this and, you know, what's going to happen with A, B, and C, and there's clarity of, of, of communication. And this is the, the one of the things around that is that, and in some cases, of course, emails are perfect if you've got to articulate key bullet points, responsibilities, compliance, mm. regulations, whatever, then, yeah. of course, you can't do that on the phone. But no matter what, any critical email should be followed up with a phone call. Mm. Firstly, did you get it? Have you had a chance to read it? Do you understand it? Do you have any questions? Anything I can do to help you? Mm. Thanks so much. That's just shown as, wow, that's different. You sent me an email and you followed up to check that I got it, that I understand it, that I'm not confused by it, and you're taking your time to help me. And and on the flip side, you could do that in reverse, right, where if you have a lengthy conversation, like, and, and what I'll do is I'll follow this up with an email, just summarising exactly what we exactly. covered and what the next steps are. Perfect way to do yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So these are the things that, that um, as part of the onboarding process is that, in, uh, communication is the most powerful thing we have mm. and it solves pretty much every challenge in the world because, you know, they're relationship-based most of the time. And so when you when you have a, a situation where a company has a reputation of excellent communication, you'll find that'll be a leading company mm. because 
the if you want to challenge that, you just think of any company that turns off its communication, does very little of it, is going to have no end of drama down the track. Mm. And and if you look at uh, back to the data that we have, you know, plenty of the number one complaint is communication, yeah. as in poor communication, not frequent enough, not clear enough, confusing, yeah. um, delayed, and and what have you. And so that's the key that a lot of companies step over. They look at their product and you know all the things around warranties and what have you, which are all important. Mm. But the one thing that everybody can easily control is communication of it. Yeah. And and getting that right and and having that part of the the structure of culture and even to the point what are the rules of the game around communication? And most companies will say, what do you mean? I don't know. What, what is that? We just assume everyone's doing it. Well, you assume everyone knows how to communicate well. Mm. And, a, and a simple way to test it, anyone who's having a job interview, just ask any person for any job interview, what's your communication standard like? Mm. What does everybody say? Great. Yeah. I'm good at it. Yeah. <laughs> and then go out in the world of as a consumer and half the time it's terrible. Yeah. So that's that's like this that's massive assumption. That yeah. Yeah, gets in the way. Um, COVID's the big one. You know, everything changed. Mm. I think we had early on we had assumptions that this was going to be short-lived and everything was going to go back to normal. It got to a point where it was very clear nothing was ever going back to normal. Then we had the new normal. Um, We're talking about Victoria, aren't we? Yeah, correct. Well, yeah, Victoria <laughs> was a special case. Different part of the planet. Different part of the world for yeah. that. Um, but but in particular now we're, we're we're sort of getting to the point where okay we're now in that new space right so supply chains are catching up you know things are starting to balance back out we've obviously got a massive issue with inflation that we've dealt with so the price of everything has gone up including the cost of doing business um, what's the survival tactic now that you need to employ to make sure you're at the top of the game in this new world look this is uh, this is a red hot topic for me. Um, a lot of people, see, if you think of it this way, it's 15 years since the GFC, mm. right? And Australia didn't really have much of an issue anyway. So for the last 15 years, it's pretty much happy days, except for you know, the bump of COVID. Mm. And then prior to that, we had a run till the 90s. So it's 30 years since Australia's had high unemployment and a recession. Mm. And just because of the time, most managers and leaders in businesses have never led in a crisis mm. in a tough market. They have no experience in how to hustle in that kind of market. Yeah. And so the thing with this is uh, it's, it's a, an area that, that, that I, I talk about a lot, especially with our clients, is if you think about the situation where post-COVID our service standards have dropped from what they were pre-COVID and, and that's – that's without question because I always ask that question and you always see people saying it's nowhere near as good, you know, mm. the frustration we have in things. So is, take, that, is, that, is that also um, a staff shortage thing? Is that an availability? Oh, it's been impacted by a whole lot of things. A whole things. bunch yes. of stuff. There's, yep. there's a lot of very valid reasons for it. But mm -hmm. the reality is, as you said, inflation, costs, taxes, our buck doesn't go as far mm. and we're not getting the same value for it, at least from a service perspective. So mm. people are getting really over this, right? And so the thing with it is that when you take that that situation that we have right now and, and the simple fact that there's very few people in leadership positions that have led their teams through really tough economic conditions. Mm. So it's a theory. 
there's no experience or very little experience, right? Because if you're mid-40s, you were 30 when the GFC happened, what kind of leadership role do you have at 30? You're on your way and you're still I'm the prime candidate of this conversation because that's exactly me. Like I, yeah. I didn't even get my first full-time gig until 2008. Yeah. So, and, and then when I landed here, I, I started this job two weeks before the pandemic. Yeah, right. And so it was my first like full-line exec position and to your point, I had never been through anything like that. I had to try and find a way to build a relationship with 13 or 14 individuals that I wasn't even able to be in the same room as. Yeah. So it was, it was one of those first-hand experiences for me. Um, well, well, you know, that's and that's what so many have been through. Mm. But the thing with this is what, what what's very important for leaders now and managers especially with their teams, it is so important right now that you get on top of this because I can't think of a more important time in at least 20 years than now than there is to step up and shine. Yep. Because when you know in general the market service standards are pretty average, it's never been easier, and I mean this, it's never been easier to stand out. Yeah. It is so easy to stand out and set yourself apart from the average from satisfaction. Mm. It's so easy. It's it's ridiculous how easy it is. Communication and the efficiency of communication and clarity and the education of what it is to do business with you and, and this is our process and this is what you can count on us for and taking serious levels of responsibility in the communication, not communication of, sorry, I'm making a whole lot of excuses, mm. but communication around here's what we're doing, here's what you can count on us for, here's what you need to do to help us work together. It's a partnership, right? Yep. So the opportunity for business now, and, and real smart companies are on top of this very quickly, train your team now to be brilliant at service. Yep. Now's the time for sales training. Now's the time for account management training. Now's the time for internal communication training. Because when companies can do this really, really well and do it authentically, genuine, not trying to fake it, mm. like fair income care about client experience and you know it's the number one thing because without them we don't have a business but there's never been a greater time to get this right because if you can get this right you stand out above everybody else because they're on average street mm. and they're not training you know, i've got a good mate who's a sales trainer and you know he's the company he's working with companies that he works with they're absolutely belting it because mm. their competitors are asleep they're still on the assumption that clients understand that delays and different things and they're still assuming the old standard of the last two, three years. Mm. And if you want to play there, okay, good for you. But if you really want to set yourself apart, then how do you define 10 out of 10 excellence? Mm. What is excellence for your company? And most companies with that question, because I ask them, it's what they sit around a boardroom and they decide what it is. Yeah. You can't decide what excellence is. Only your clients can determine what excellence is because they pay your bill. Mm. So this is where um, most have a the best intention, but they have the wrong methodology and they don't have the right information because they work off their own assumptions of what they think good service is or a handful of comments and a bit of... Um, online reviews, which are useless for this kind of thing, you've really got to have very clear um, market data on your performance, that independent market perspective on how well you serve them. Mm. And then when you know what that is, you make sure everyone in the business knows what that is and they're trained to deliver that. And if you don't get this right, then you, you, you know, you're taking a big risk. Yep. 
Yeah, we see a lot of businesses, particularly in our industry, um, so, so within the AV industry over the past maybe 10 years, there's been a lot of international acquisition. Mm. Um, and what tends to happen with international acquisition is it becomes, you know, a, a wipe the slate clean in whatever you've done, your culture, your process, those sorts of things, they tend to go away. Um, and it becomes now you're part of the, the bigger entity. When those bigger entities are international, um, quite often the cultural shift actually has no real resonance with, with how business is done in, in region. Um, how can businesses that are going through massive shift still focus on the stuff that's important within a, within a region that they're acting in? So how do we manage to advise on, no, 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 it has to be done this way in this region um, because that's the way business is done. How do you have that fight without necessarily um, upsetting Look, the apple that, cart? That's, that's a tough one. We've had, um, you know, our frustration. We've had some really key clients we've had for years um, been acquired. Mm. In the last sort of 18 months, we've, we've lost about half a dozen and they've been big ones. And part of the reason why they got bored was because they were exceptionally good at what they did because they've been tuning and tuning and tuning client experience for years. So they really know what their game is. Mm. And so they've been acquired because they had really good returns and great loyalty and everything else. And in every single case, they no longer work with us mm. because of exactly what you're saying. Overseas have a methodology. We've got our way, yeah. We've got our way and you've got to, you know, it's a collective. Mm. Right? Um, and so I guess the thing is with that, if you have the ability to communicate your point of difference, specific point of difference, by having the, the, the client data that says, here's why we're great. Mm. This is what our uniqueness is from a service experience. Here's what our clients love about us. You need to respect that and honor that and, and protect that. Mm. But if you want us to make these other changes, be aware that we're gonna take away from that and we're gonna drop our service standard. And so, it's a hard one because often the decisions are made in another country and they just don't listen. Yeah. Like I've had direct involvement with talking to people overseas to explain to them what goes on here. Uh, I had one case a, a while back where I, I had to sign these NDAs and stuff because it was all highly confidential it was happening. And I gave them all the reasons around what the made the company great. Mm. And that data was significant to the acquisition going ahead, but they didn't keep doing the data. Didn't use it later on. Because they have the, their own belief. And this is the part of the arrogance, I guess, with how a lot of overseas companies see Australia. They just think it's the same. It's, yeah. It's not, right? Yeah. But the, I guess the thing with that is if you're going through that, then you need to have a strong argument. You need to be able to define, you know, what defines your excellence in your business. And if you can't define what makes separates you from your competitors in, mm. in, your, in your local market, then if I'm the acquirer from overseas and you can't give me a good reason why I've got to stay with a certain model, then why should I? Yeah. So if you don't, have, if it's just your opinion, who cares? Yeah. You know, it was um, the famous W. Edwards Deming says, without data, you're just another person with an opinion and they're mm. not worth much. Mm. So having the data helps. Outside of that, if you're competing in a market and one of your major competitors has just been acquired, Happy days. Yeah, take full advantage. Oh, don't be scared. I've had yeah. people say, oh, what are we going to do now? They're bought by a big global company. They've got we're all these unlimited all... funds. No, they haven't. Their budgets are going to be worse than ever. Yeah, and we're going to ring all their clients over the next yeah. six weeks and tell and, them how good we are. And yeah. assume one thing, 
It's going to be chaos. Mm. Rarely do they go well. And so often uh, the competitive companies that are now um, up against those global operations, uh, unless you've got certain niches, it's a bit hard to deal with. But if it's still going to be business as usual on the ground in Australia, go harder. Yeah. Go harder than ever because your opportunity for acquiring clients because they're going to get frustrated by this. Mm. Um, I've just in the last two weeks delivered some data uh, for one of our clients and they acquired another company in the state. So they're, they're expanding within the country. And we, when we interviewed all those clients in the state, that have been, you know, now dealing with a new company. We had some very specific questions around how you're feeling about it, what changes have you noticed, and they have done an exceptionally good job. Mm. Uh, a couple of little things were like the IT side of things; they were confused with the different software. The invoicing was done a different way, mm -hmm. and there was uh, some logistic stuff that that had changed. But other than that, they'd done everything else really well because they scored really highly on it. But they put planning into this, and they really went out of their way when they took over and it was public. They hit the ground hard. They visited face-to-face -face and they didn't assume anything. They're like, tell us tell us what you need. Mm. We, we want to understand your business. We don't want to assume anything. What, if, what have you liked about the previous company? What specific things made them, you know, uh, very valuable for yep. you? And they really worked hard at understanding their client. And mm. then when they've adapted in, they've made a lot of changes. They do things differently in state than what they do here in Melbourne, adapting into this new market. And they'll bring it back over time because they need to make that efficient. But they've they've shown the respect at, that they have to let the clients be a part of this. Yeah. Most don't do that. Yeah. I, um, I'm a big fan of Mark Burris's podcast, Straight Talk. I don't yeah. think they called it that. So, so yeah, big fan of that. Um, and he had an interesting subject the other day, and this probably leads us into a little bit of, um, you know, we're sort of hypothesizing for the next part of this. Um, today's interest rate day. So Reserve Bank's meeting today. Oh, yeah, and we'll, we'll find yeah. out in a couple of hours whether we're, we've got the up or down. Mark Burris was very shocked that we had a rate rise mm. last time. Mm. He's Before actually that. tipping there's going to be another one now. And, yes. and interestingly, the way he's pitching it, his point of view is what he thinks the Reserve Bank are doing now is, okay, so the CPI stuff is is starting to level out. But he's like what we've got to deal with now is this issue of particularly younger people, but people that are now blessed with, we spoke about before, they've never been through a GFC, never been through a recession. They think employment is for granted. Mm. They think that every next job that they're going to go to is going to give them an extra 30 or 40 grand. And, and the point that Mark Burris is making is he thinks that the Reserve Bank's actually now trying to teach a lesson to yeah, those that are younger. Yeah. yeah, and and yeah. say it's not all sweet. So no. you've got to realise what it's like to be tough. Um, what do you think is going to happen and, and what's it look like over the next 12 to 18 months? Oh, look, I think today's significant. If they go up today, it's going to be more of a shock mm. because, you know, it's starting to get hard. Look, I think in in that situation, it is it's it's fine if people are looking to learn and get experiences in different companies to broaden their capacity and and to be you know an expert in whatever they, subject matter expert whatever it may be. Mm. If you're looking to work, go for a company, work there for 12, 18 months, then go to another company. As long as when you're there, you deliver the greatest value possible. No one's going to be – they're going to be disappointed 
because they're going to lose such a valuable person. But if you've contributed greatly and you get it back, everybody wins. Mm. When people chase money, it's a different thing altogether. And it's interesting in the IT sector because we've got a few clients and some major ones in that. And they went through a world of pain 18 months ago with the great resignation because people were just chasing money. Mm. And then pretty quickly it did the probably, I can't think of another U-turn in a, in a sector that just sacked people. Yeah. Like look at Facebook and yeah. Amazon and Google. Twitter and that works. Thousands yep. and thousands of people got dumped. Mm. But, but a year prior they are getting hired and paid crazy money. Uh, so that was a that was a really significant uh, term where people that chase the dollar are now chasing a job. Mm. So was it a smart move? Definitely not. And so the thing with this is that if you look at the really, and, and I guess it was a bit different with the big tech companies, but in in the in the general sense, where it's uh, privately owned enterprises is kind of most of my market anyway. You deal. I, I love dealing with people who sign the checks. Mm. The rest of it's just fluff and bubble and no one's responsible for the money and you can't get decisions. And, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I find there's a lot of people that are decision makers but the only decision they can make is no. Yeah. <laughs> if it requires money, I don't have authority to make yeah, that decision. Can't do it. You know, they're not yeah. decision makers at all. Yeah. Um, but in the private sector, the companies that are, uh, that are well matured and wise, they know the rates. Mm. They know what value for money is from a team member. Because, you know, the bottom line, a company exchanges its money to buy an individual's time and an individual exchanges its time for a company's money. It's an yeah. exchange of time and money. Yeah. And there's a value to that. And so the really, you know, well-heeled businesses, they know what a rate is. And there's a bit of flexibility depending on extreme skills and what have you to, to bring value to that. But just to go pay 30, 40 grand because – other people are. Mm. They didn't play that game. Yeah, and and I I know some some people who um run some pretty significant companies. You know, three four hundred on their team, and and they've lot they lost quite a few team um, in the early stages. I remember one guy saying he was paying grads around 80, 80 to ninety grand, and they were getting offered one hundred and thirty, hundred and forty. Mm. And they were asking him to match. He's like, "No way, I'm going to match. You're not worth it, mate. Yeah, you, you just are not worth it. You." We're, you're costing us money at the moment. We're training you. Yeah. You're not worth that. And so they chase the money. A lot of them are now looking for work. Mm. Because the thing is, you've got to look at the reason why is this company punting so high to buy, to buy people. Yeah, particularly on jobs that are known to be 30 40% yeah. above market rate. So you've, yeah. got to, you've got to ask the question, why is it Christmas? Why is a company... Punting so much money. What's what's behind? What's the reason behind the reason? Mm. Well, we need more people. Yeah, why? And sometimes what it is, and and this is where there's plenty of examples of this. They've got an they've got a strategic objective. They've got some kind of strategy they want to play. They've got to test something in the market. So they've got to hire people. Go at a hundred miles an hour to see if it works. And if it doesn't work, everyone gets fired. Yeah. And if it does work, happy. Yeah. But most of the time. You just ask anyone in business, how often do you get it right? And it's not the majority of the times your strategies work. Mm. It's it's all, you know, hit and miss, learning as you go. But anyone who thinks they get every strategy right haven't, haven't done enough of them. Yeah. And so people have got to think about, you know, why is this company offering so much money? Different if you are extremely 
knowledgeable and experienced in your field. If mm. you are an absolute gun at what you do, maybe you're worth it and you're being headhunted because you are that good. Mm. But if you can't define what makes you better than everybody else and they're offering more money, I'd be I'd be thinking about that. Because be, yeah. a quick buck isn't isn't much more isn't any more money if you're now out of work for six months. Correct. You know? Yeah. And I feel like that's inevitably how things have to go, right? Like nothing can stay on that trajectory that it's been on it's for that possible. long and no one can continue to offer that money. No. Um, in particular, again, you know, within the industry that we're in, so the AV side of things or, or user experiences, um, we find now and, and goes to that earlier point I made before where some business has been acquired internationally, you're also up against that international investment, which normally has a shelf life, mm. but most businesses will go, yeah, cool, all right, we don't want to lose any staff, we don't want to be seen to be changing, so here's a whole bunch of extra money to see you through the next two years. And then all of a sudden they come asking for the return on that investment. Absolutely. Um, in those instances, and, and so if you were to offer advice to people that are in a position where they think the money's too good, I've got to take this thing, what do they need to be thinking about? I, I always, I, I don't care what people do in, in a role, it's, it's irrelevant. There's one thing that, that I, I see and this was taught to me years ago by a uh, an old guy who had been in business all his life. And he, he said that everyone that's employed has one primary task, be the greatest value you can be. Mm. And uh, I'm trying to think who made the statement, I can't remember, but it was you're not paid for the hour, you're really paid for the value that you bring to the hour mm. that you're paid for. So 38 hours a week is not 38 hours, it's what value did you bring to those 38 hours? And the more value you can bring to those hours, the more you're worth. Mm. The more when the crunch comes, if the crunch comes and we've got a cut by 10%, you're not part of that. So this is where a lot of people and, and you know, we do team experience as well. So we're understanding you know, what the team's like about companies to work for and, and defining culture. Mm. But often the... The you know what's referred to as the you know what's the value equation so to speak, but the big thing about it is every individual has got to think how do I increase my value, and we have a responsibility to do that. Mm. Otherwise, ten years of experience is just ten times one. Yeah, you've you stop learning been, after the first year. Here. So what? You've been yeah. here ten years, but you stop learning after the first year. I'd rather take someone with. Um, two years experience that's gone flat out. And there's there's a great saying, you know. Um, and I do this. I will hire attitude over skill any day. Always. It's it's easy to train skill. It's impossible to train attitude or very hard. No. So attitude over skill every day. And attitude is around value. Mm. So everybody who who is thinking around how to first of all how do I keep my job? How do I make sure that that I'm okay? Then if everybody on that team looks at it and goes, how do I increase my value and what I bring to this business? How do I increase my value to my team members? Because if we do that, we automatically just deliver more value to the market. Mm. And when we deliver the greatest value to the market, that'll protect us more than anything else. Because there's a, there's a, uh, a business distinction that, that we cover um, called the price trap. And there are so many companies that have no clue how the price trap works. Yep. And, and there's a series of questions you run in this, and, and I do it in, in workshops and stuff. 
And when I ask the questions, rarely can people answer them. They just don't know for the simple reason they haven't been around in a market where that was yeah. full-on price discounting because it's desperate to survive. Mm. So the, the operating models in a recession market are totally different to the operating models in a, in a stable economy. Mm. And, and so what companies have got to do is avoid the panic so when your competitors are discounting and then your clients are saying, well, you know, they'll match this price or they'll do it for this price, can you match it? Well, then it's a pretty simple equation, really. If you're just doing satisfaction and you're just pretty average, then all you've got is price. Mm-hmm. But in every market, there's a number one and they're never the cheapest and they will never need to be the cheapest because they're the best. And the end of the day, you know, cheap isn't cheap if it's late. Yeah, Cheap isn't cheap if only half the order's delivered. Yep. Cheap isn't cheap if we don't have the resources and we can't deliver on time. Then it's, it's expensive. And so this is where companies that really get the heart connection to their market and they, they focus on client appreciation and, and stay away from satisfaction. Let your competitors do that. Yep. You, you do that really well. And what it does, and, and we see this in data, it's there always. People, and we all do it by nature, right? You think about businesses that you really, really love doing business with. It might be where you go out for dinner, where you get your car serviced, not haircuts for me anymore, (laughs) but it might be that. And if you really love these businesses, right, usually when you get to the core, why do you love this business? It's not so much their product. It's who they are about how they deliver their product. Mm. So when you have that heart connection with that business, you kind of feel guilty if you go somewhere else. You're right. It's like, oh, I'll just buy it this time because it's cheap mm. or it's on sale, but I'm coming back to the other one. And so if you don't have that heart connection, you're just about price. And mm. so this is the problem. Satisfaction is a head connection and price is a head connection as well. Or it's also emotional mm. on the discount. But if you only have a head connection to your market, and that which is satisfaction, you are going to be fighting a battle to beat the pro- stay out of the price trap. Yeah. Because the key to stay out of the price trap is how do you deliver unique transformational experiences Mm. around what it is you do, which is being the greatest communicators, being super efficient, being unbelievably helpful, understanding. A a question we ask is how well would you rate us on understanding your your specific needs in your company? And I've got data that shows very low scores on understanding where the clients say, I don't think you really get us. And that's what they say. So they just don't take the time. They don't come and visit us anymore. Yeah. They, they haven't seen how we've changed. So they don't know what's changed in our business and they keep trying to adapt, but they haven't been here because mm. they got rid of their account managers and what have you. So, so if you don't understand your market, then you, you're going to get caught in a price trap. Yeah. But those that take the time to really understand their clients, what's coming up, what are you doing in the future, how can we help, what are your challenges? Because what's amazing as well is, is the power of great companies always have really powerful networks. Mm. Great companies hang out with great companies. And so you've got your suppliers, and if you can understand what their challenges are, you just may well know someone who can help them. Yep. And if they've got a challenge with it and they tell you it's a challenge, it means they haven't got a solution because it's a challenge. But if you can be, well, let me see if I can find someone who can help you, and you can introduce someone that you know you can trust and they help them, they're not going to leave. Yeah. Because 
That just shows how much you care, right? And these are the simple things that, that define what appreciation is to a market. And if you don't have that right front of mind right now coming into a squeeze, good luck with price. You better have a lot of fat in the margins because mm-hmm. you're going to need to discount. So if it was a, <clears throat> excuse me, a mission critical situation, a business at the moment is looking ahead to the next eight to 12 months, they're not 100% sure as to what the future looks like. Like, it, you know, it might be a, a bit touch and go. What are the one, two or, or three things you say like do today? Understand your market. Yeah. Because if you feel it's going to get tough, then and then go talk to the people you. And is that to. what that's about? That's just about making a, a concerted effort externally. Absolutely. Go and meet and go lunch and, meet with them. and yep. Because yep. see, here's the crazy thing, right? If you feel your market's getting tough, which means the people you sell to are un- it's only getting tough if they're under pressure. Otherwise, it wouldn't be tough. Mm. So if you feel that they're under pressure, then it's just common sense, isn't it, to go and understand what that pressure is. Mm. For a couple of reasons. Get the heads up because if they say to you, it's just drying up, there's nothing we can do, and you're thinking, crikey, I'm supplying a market that's drying up, well, I better diversify. Yeah. I better find it and get onto it now because I understand my market. Most people don't. They don't understand their market. Yep. They think they do, but they really, they only understand their market from the invoices they send out. Mm. That's after the fact. So understand your market. And secondly, make sure that your your leadership team and your, and your key managers are on top of communication mm. with the market and internally. There's the internal client and the external client. Internal client is everybody in the business. External client is the market. Yep. And so, you know, one, one of the things I, I ask is when I have a big group, I'll say, you know, uh, just raise your hand so it helps me understand who, in, who here in the group uh, is directly involved in client experience. And so you'll get salespeople, account managers, you know, key people put their hand up and mm. the rest, you might have half the team don't. Yeah. And then at the end of it, you get they, they all put their hands up because you understand that you may be in a situation in administration, back office, something like that. You don't ever directly talk to or see a client. But you deal, you support people that do. Mm. So your client is your colleague and their client is the market. Yeah. Everyone's in client experience because your job is to make sure that your communication is clear and effect and you're super efficient so that you don't cause any delays for your teammates so that they don't have delays to your market. Mm. So whether it's internal or external client, doesn't matter. Service, communication, efficiency. It's you know, universal. It's absolutely. Yeah. And and so when you get that right, you're you're you got powerful, you've got a tight culture, right? So if you understand your market, got great communication in your team, then when there are challenges, the crazy thing is that if you throw the challenge into the team, you'll always come up with the answer. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Because when you put all the heads together, magic happens, right? And and so the other thing to, to remember too with this is that companies, smart companies, right, they will get through this if we go into a squeeze. They'll get through it. And the, and the reason why you can say to them, how do you know you'll survive the challenge? And the simple answer is you just, you've survived every challenge you've had to get to this point. Mm. So if they've been around for a while, there's been plenty of challenges. Every business goes through them. And the ones that are still here after 10 years, they've dealt with a lot of challenges. So 
if they get the basics right, they'll survive this because a lot of their competitors they don't have have this handled. Yeah, they just don't. And your answers in your team always, mm. especially if you got a good good tight team. Yeah, yeah. Is there is now a good opportunity, particularly given if a business is under financial pressure and they might not be able to find the staff, is it also a good time to sort of do a bit of an internal stock take on your client list? Totally. Um, and particularly for some people that they may have had a longstanding relationship with a client and now there's just no investment potential there. You know, is it time to sort of go, okay, maybe we're not doing business anymore? Like I'm, I'm sort of trying to I'm, I'm not in sales, so I'm, I'm conscious of always offending salespeople in, in understanding the pressure that they're under to deliver. Um, I couldn't do the sales thing. I'm not cut out for that. Um, but then it becomes a trick for them. It's like, well, I don't want to lose this client because they have been good to me, but I can't afford to pour any more time into them in the short term because I've got to hit my budget. Like what advice for someone in that aspect? Well, first of all, a lot of um – when you look at a lot of client bases, and this is the key part is the 80-20 rule. So who, where's the 80% of the revenue coming from? Mm. And then it's making sure, because that's most of the market we research, the big hitters. You know, you lose five of them and someone's going to lose their job. Yeah. That's the impact. Yeah. So you've got to make sure that the 80-20 rule, the 80% of the revenue, those clients are secure. That's why you've got to get out and talk to them and understand how's them. And if, they're, if you go out and you find that, you know, the 80% of your revenue and half of that's under threat because their market's drying up, then you can predict you're in serious trouble. Yeah. So how do you get ready for that? So the key to that is um, you've got to make sure the margins are good too mm. because there are so many people in business, they see the revenue but the discounts and the pricing is so out of whack is that it? you're putting all these resources into supporting these clients that don't make you any money. Mm. And so it is what it is but you have to change it. Because you can't put resources into su supporting clients that don't give you any margin. Mm. You can't make – business can't survive without profit. Yeah. And, and there's this fallacy around, oh, you know, companies are greedy and they're always about profit. Mm. Well, guess what? Um, companies that were profitable and strong survived COVID and people kept their jobs. Mm. And if they aren't profitable, you everyone loses. They're gone. You've got yeah. to have profit. Yeah. So the big thing there is – Make sure the margins are right because often that's what's stepped over. And if they're not right, then you've got to go and talk to your clients and say, look, we have to increase pricing. Mm. And and sometimes, you know, even with that one, people say, oh, you know, you're putting the prices up 15%. That's too much. It's like, well, actually, think about how much you've saved in the last four years when we haven't. Yeah. And I've actually had clients that have gone and got all the revenue from the last four years, shown them what they should have been on. Yeah. Show them the discounts. <laughs> and then this is what you've saved, mate. Yeah. So don't get grumpy at me now because I need to survive. We've supported you huge. Mm. Now we need a little bit back. And if they can't work with that, then that's a bit bit ordinary. But often the the situation is there isn't the clarity of the of the evidence. Mm. It's just, oh, you're putting your prices up. Yep. Well, actually, we're just bringing you up to where you should be. Mm. And so that's often what happens with discounting. And you, so you go through all this phase of doing all this work for very little margin. Then when it gets really tight and you have to increase margin or, or you've, got to sack, you've got to sack the client basically, yeah, yeah. then you go and talk to them. They think you're ripping them off. Yeah. That's because you haven't educated. 
And we see that particularly in um, in a large portion of our industry, as most industries, are driven by tender Mm -hmm. um, and things going out to tender. And so it's this consistent battle of, again, at the upper echelons, trying to find staff, having to overpay staff to deliver a tender, which you quoted at 8% margin, and then something went wrong with the project timeline. That's now 4%. Now I've got no margin to pay this guy. Now I've got to say goodbye to this guy. Um, so I yeah. think too, like finding a blend of high margin work, you know, yeah. that, that you know is going to be valuable both to your client and to your business um, to offset, you know, the necessary evil, which is yeah. which is doing the tender work. But I think if you're one of those businesses that has been built on large tender work, you need to rethink that now. Look, um, that's that. Yeah, I stay out of that. Mm. It, it just does my head in. Um, and unfortunately, I think a lot of the challenges are the people that are in the, in the tender um, assessing the tenders. They don't understand the pressure that the company's been through to give you this tender on time, <laughs> and the resources they've got to put in to get all the information. And then they're ticking and flicking boxes. Yeah. They have. And this is me generalising, of course, but in many cases, you're very accurate in your generalisation. They don't <laughs> understand the massive effort that's gone into give you this proposal, right? Mm. You and can't then, put a tender together for under forty hours. Like in, oh, on average, they're you, eighty plus. You'd take risk if you did, because now you're being held to account for what you said, right? Correct. And then the other thing is cheap. Mm. Cheap doesn't work. You know, we we've seen so many cases over the years. Uh, especially where companies are delivering stuff in a box. And they'll get their their quality, their product's good, their account managers are good, their invoicing's good, their communication's good. Everything's fine except the courier. Yeah. Late, broken, wrong address, whatever. And and this comes up in the feedback. Oh, they're, you know, they're really good, but now they, they've got some, I don't know what they've done with their delivery, but it's, just so unreliable and you get to the core of it and some bean counter decided that we can make more margin if we change and get a cheaper courier. Yeah. It was the worst decision you make because it wasn't cheap. It's very, very expensive because you're upsetting your clients. Yeah. You're having to replace stock. That's not cheap. And so this is where the assessment has got to be around value because cheap couriers aren't cheap Mm. if you're selling expensive products and, and you have clients that are time dependent on your products. And I've seen so many cases of that. And so this is where it's really important that there's that understanding around, you know, what really, where are the value, key value points in a business? Yeah. If getting stuff on time is is critical, then you've got to make sure you've got powerful delivery. Mm. Sometimes it's not so much because it's just part of stock. And if it's a few days later, well, it doesn't matter. It all depends what's the critical parts yeah. for your client. And, and in the tender process... I don't know how that's understood and it's very hard because I know companies that have tried to educate the people that are putting the tenders out and then they see that as bias. It's like, yeah. it's not bias. I'm trying to help you understand what you need. But then you can't even speak to the people that you need to speak to because no. of probity and whatever. And really like the summary of what tenders do is they take a really high-profile project that needs a whole bunch of really good attention and say now four people need to duke it out to do it as cheap as humanly possible. And then they're like, well, you know, it doesn't always come down to price. Well, it sure does. When, you when you're talking does. about tender, there's no one that's looking at two tenders that are side by side even and giving it to the guy that's 20 grand more just because they think there'll be a better job done. 
Um, so that's something that I think, particularly in in industry in general, mm. we need to be thinking about that. I think. Well, one one you know, a simple way to make that successful, more successful, would be to the people making the tenders. If you choose the wrong one, you're gone. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But that'd be almost <laughs> like, like making Whoa. a politician come <laughs> true on what they promised yeah. before election, oh, right? <laughs> um, you know, anywhere you can put responsibility and accountability to people choosing the tenders. And, and, of course, there's some people who do a wonderful job of this too. They mm. do a really good job, so it's not tarnishing that at all. But often there's a misunderstanding of what's required from the supplier and and it's really important. Yep. You know, um, like if you're going to assess this company on AV, you need to have someone, even if you get a consultant in, who specialises in AV to say, okay, what are the things that are really critical to pick the best, mm. the best value? Giving you some sort of framework. Yeah, because yeah. otherwise you've got people that are just working off a a theory with yep. no experience. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah. Um, to round it out, I would like to sort of talk about particularly, you know, we, we opened talking about how so much had changed maybe in the last 20 or 30 years, but I think the thing that that is relationships, you know, we're, we're clear on being something that's critical to business going forward, but how people's purchasing patterns have changed and how people's information when they're about to make a purchase has changed. For people that are in sales now that used to be able to sort of bluff or, or storytell their way through, um, what do we need to be conscious of in knowing that all of our consumers now have access to better information, more information quicker? Um, what are some of the survival tactics to capitalise on them knowing what they want to purchase and, and us making sure we steer them in that direction? Look, it's an interesting one. Um, I've just bought a bunch of stuff online last night and I'm getting it delivered to my family um, up in Queensland because mm. I'm heading off in a few days. Um, and But I did give a business that I know uh, that, I did, that I've dealt with opportunity to see if they had it, but they didn't have it. So the one thing with that is if you don't have this great relationship with your market, you're irrelevant. Mm. You know, if you're not relevant, you're irrelevant. And if you're irrelevant, all you've got is price. And how do you get on top of Google? Good luck with that. Yeah, right. So the thing is with it that the online environment has definitely ramped up massively from COVID because it just was the perfect catalyst mm. for, for online. So there's been a boom in that. So if you can't be part of that or if you are part of that end retail, it, once again, your service has got to be exceptional because the one thing with this is, right, when you have really powerful client appreciation, which is that – that, that feeling with your market, that heart connection with your market, there's still the tactile part of things. So if I need, to, if I really know you're great and, and have great integrity in business and you're good value and you really know your stuff and, and you're there to help me, I'll drive across town to talk to you. Mm. But if I don't get that, I'll go online, right? And so the thing with it is that you've got to look at how do you create the environment so that people see the value in taking their time to come into your store mm. or, or come to see you or yeah. letting you go to see them. Because if you don't have that, they just go click online because it's easy at 10 o'clock at night or 9 o'clock at night, you know, on the couch to buy stuff. Yeah. And this is the other thing that I find fascinating, disappointing very much in, in the environment we have now around service. You think about what it costs for fuel, tolls, time, driving, to a shopping centre, like Chatton or something like that, and you take all the time to go there and then you go into a business 
and they give you poor service. Mm. It's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Like you're just standing here waiting for me to put all this massive effort into coming into your store and you can't even give me a quality experience. Mm. And for anyone who's not on the on their game, good luck surviving, Yeah, especially retail. But then you look at some of the real great ones in retail, they're, they're fine. Yeah, they're doing fine. And I think they'll be stronger at the back end of this because a lot of their competitors will have gone. Because mm. I think the and, and the thing that resonates is that point that you made before, um, you know, it's the old sort of the triangle, right? You've got price, you've got quality, you've got speed of service. And the thing that you can measure now more effectively with the on my, online model is the price and the speed of, of delivery. Mm. So you know when you can have it and you can know how much you can pay for it. Um, but you don't necessarily know what that experience is like on the way through. Mm. And I think that's also another area that comes unstuck where people are like, I'd rather just go to the store and then I know that I can get it and leave with it that day and it's yep. all good. Um, but if you're ignoring the client when they're walking through the door, you're never even getting to that point. Look, it's, it's an interesting one and, you know. I'm not sure I understand. Either do we, love. <laughs> <laughs> um, part, of, part of going through the, the Renault and stuff, uh, Sue, my wife, she she was looking around different retailers and things, right? And she went into um, ES Trading. Oh yeah. So I'll give them a plug. Yep. Never dealt with them before. She had a uh, her, her perception was, oh, they're going to be really expensive because just the way they market, right? Mm. She went in there and was blown away by the help she got. And so we bought some stuff off them, and the guys came down, and I live an hour and a half out of Melbourne. I'm in, I'm in Gippsland, mm. so. The guys that delivered the fridge and things we got, they were just the best guys. They were fabulous. They yeah. called us to let us know what time they're going to arrive. They then called back to say they were running a little bit late. Couldn't fold it. They got there so helpful. Nothing mm. was too much trouble. So I started chatting with them and I'm just because they were near the end of their run, so they had time. And I'm like, what's it like to work? They go, oh, we love this job. Okay, what's so good about a delivery job? They go, even the boss comes and helps us. Yeah, wow. And and the thing was that they don't use couriers because they can't control mm. who's driving and delivering. Yeah. But they use their own team, all their own trucks, all their own team. And every time we've had a contact with that company, it's been fantastic service. They're not and, – and they're com- definitely competitive, but yeah. they have a culture yeah. where the two guys that were the delivery guys, they were the best fellas. Yep. Couldn't fault them. Yep. You're thinking, wow, what great service and you're delivering stuff in the truck, you know. Nothing was a problem. It's an interesting one though and sorry to, to jump yeah. in because I had an experience that was similar but it went the other way. Um, I went to a furniture store and bought a sofa that I'd be – it was a considered purchase. You know, sofas aren't cheap. No. Um, so I spent a bit of time thinking about it and it's an expensive sofa. And then you start speaking to that. The deal's been done. Cool, we signed the paperwork. And now let's talk about delivery. So this is what's going to happen. Someone's going to give you a call. Um, It'll be like a four-hour window. They'll tell you that you need to be home. By the way, if there's any steps to walk up, then that's extra. Um, If you want to take the rubbish away, that's extra. Uh, If they can't get it through the door, like, you know, you got to measure all that because then they're going to leave it there and then you'll have to get it in yourself. And I'm like... All this information was all available after, after, I'd, I, purchased. after I'd purchased it. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, well, now there's this awful taste in my mouth yeah. because you've already got my money and now you're telling me how bad this experience is going to be um, to the point where that's exactly what happened. The sofa was delivered. The guys were not personable at all. Um, they're like, yep, yeah, 
put the couch in. If there's any problems, call anyone. They took a photo. They left all the rubbish there. But because they're in this position where they're having to use an external agency or whatever That's to it. deliver. Um, and I love that point. Now is not the time to put your faith in other people if you can't control what that experience is like, mm. right? Yeah. Um, how do we how do we keep some sort of level of control in knowing that we've got to use other bo- you've bodies? You've got to be very, very confident of every step of the journey in your door, so to mm. speak, in your lounge room, whatever that is, all the way to the final point. And if you can't have direct input and a, a quite a high degree of control over that, it's luck. Mm. Who, who are you going to get today? Yeah. Um, you know, and things like waste. And we, we years back we did one of the big bedding retailers. And one of the things they had with their stuff too was people got really frustrated because they'd say it'd be six to eight weeks delivery. And the sales process was about um, just get the deal, mm. like your exact situation, yeah. and then six to eight weeks delivery. And so what would happen is it was never six. It was eight, nine, ten because mm. it was manufactured as well, right, furniture and things. So their feedback was really poor. The quality of the product was good, but the experience on delivery was really smashing them. Right? Mm. And then people said, "Think." I remember some of the comments. You know, um, I've got a, I've got a, a queen size mattress in my hallway, and I drive a Golf. How am I going to get it? Get rid of it? Mm. Um, and other people, and there was another comment. A lady says, "Well, it's still in the box because my partner." You can't work out how to put it together. Mm. So there's a whole bunch of commentary on this. And what, what happened out, out of the feedback is is basically what, what we were able to lead them to is you need to redesign your entire delivery experience. So what they did, they went right back to the sales team and they said to them, because what people would be chasing up, trying to find out when their delivery was coming, and couldn't get an answer from anyone. Mm. Right? So what they did, they said to the sales team, you get half your commission, uh, at whatever point it was, and you only get the full commission when it's delivered. Yeah, right. So you've got to make sure that if it's in the warehouse that you're and you're calling your clients to let them know what's going on and what have you because that's completing the journey. Mm. And then they change things like when you purchase, would you like us to take your old bed away? And if you're getting furniture, um, do you need that assembled? Yep. And the amount of people that take up those offers is massive. Yep. Because... If you're getting rid of a bed, what do you, what do you want to do with the old one? You want to Correct. get rid of it. Yeah. How do you get rid of them? They're yeah. not easy to get rid of. And so, who wants to have more rubbish at their house after they exactly. buy something? Like so, I don't want to end up with more filth. That's what you call great client experience. Mm. So by changing that dramatically when we researched the next one, all that went away mm. because people were saying, oh, sales process was great, delivery was good. The, the salesperson called me, let me know it was coming in. There was a few people even commented, I actually delayed it because we – we we're having renovations done and we hadn't finished painting, whatever else, so I had them put it on hold. But at least if I know, if you tell me it's ready in six weeks and it's ready in six weeks, but I don't need it for eight weeks, can you hang on to it for two weeks? Yeah. That's terrific yeah. because you're early mm. and then you're holding it for me. But if you're late, it's a frustration. Yep. So this whole thing is, is just balancing this out and often the challenge is that right up at the front end, get the money, get the money, mm. and forget about it after that. Yeah. Yeah, move on. It doesn't work. Well, um, Daryl, that brings us to the end. I think to summarise, customer service is still the number one thing, right? Like that is... When hasn't it been? That is exactly. But but people seem to overcomplicate that more often and I think, um, 
you know, the one thing that is very clear at the moment is get back to that, right? Well, if you think of it this way, great customer experience actually doesn't cost much more at all. Mm. It, like it really shouldn't and doesn't cost more to be polite, ask good questions, make a phone call, follow up. It, it, it doesn't cost much. And whatever it does cost in the significance of repeat business and referral mm. and better margin, it's a bargain. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, that's a, mis- a lot of misunderstanding because there's a lot of people out there that they, they – and this is part of the thing is I've had people say to me, it's not worth the extra money to deliver excellence. There's data that proves that. Mm. Yeah, well, that's proved by people who don't want to do it. Just ask the market. Yep. No one complains about great service. No I one ever complains like, about value. And I feel like either way, 50 years from now, there'll be someone doing a podcast talking about the importance of customer service because it will have been forgotten yes. yet again. Yeah. Um, Daryl, it's been great. We're going to have a whole bunch of information uh, in the post if people want to reach out and get yep. in touch um, and take advantage of the services. But thanks for coming and hanging out. It's It's been, um, it's been good. Thanks. Pleasure.